as most of you are aware, our evening meetings have been focused for a while, on and off, in the book of Jeremiah. And um, I want to come back to the book of Jeremiah this evening. I want to come back, uh, having done a reintroduction to the book uh, a few weeks back, and um, try to just basically catch us up to the third chapter. And uh, chapter 2 is just an exciting chapter, in my estimation. I mean, there's lots in there. It's packed with statements that the prophet makes. But really, when you, when you see the central themes that surround it, it's really the story of God's love relationship with his people Israel. And it's a love story that's a story of unrequited love. God has lavished his love upon them as his people, and in return, they have not loved him. They have sought out other gods. They have been guilty of that heinous, incomprehensible act of uh, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, as we saw in Romans chapter 1 in Sunday school. They have been guilty of that horrible act of of, um, forsaking the fountain of life to you, you you now for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. And um, God is concerned to um, pour out his displeasure with the people who, who so failed to respond to every overture of his kindness, of his goodness, and of his love. And yet even at this point, even though this relationship of love is headed for the divorce court, and that's really where we end up in the beginning of chapter 3, we end up in the law of Deuteronomy 24. If a man divorces his wife and she goes out from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her, as we saw in Deuteronomy 24? Impossible. He's, that's, that's a relationship that's dead now. And it could never, ever be revived. And God gives that word of caution to the Israelites just because... Divorce in the culture around them could have been such a common thing that there needed to be restraints that were placed upon it. I mean, Jesus said it was for the hardness of your heart that Moses suffered you to put away your wives. He didn't command you to do it, by no means. Uh, It was not so from the beginning. From the beginning, God made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And yet the reality is the hardness of the heart of the Israelite would have been such that if there was not this permission to put away their wives, they might have killed them because they were displeased with them. And so God looks to regulate their passions, looks to get them to consider what this means. If you send this woman out from your home and she goes and marries somebody else, you're not getting her back. You're not getting her back. That's a final Dissolution of the marriage relationship never to be revived again. And that's how it was in Israel. You couldn't just send her away and then take her back the next week at your whim. This was a permanent dissolving of the marriage, a permanent death blow that was struck to the marriage. And if he was to take her back, that would be to pollute the land. That's what Deuteronomy 24 says. But yet Israel is one who is not just done something that the man is considered unclean. And we're not certain even what that was. It wasn't adultery, because if it was an adultery, she would have been stoned. 
But it was something less than adultery, but yet something that displeased him, something that, you know, there were liberal views that said if, you know, if you saw Fiddler on the Roof, if she burns his toast, he could divorce her. Well, probably not. It had to be something more serious than that. But God regulates it in such a way as to make a man very cautious about taking that step of putting her away from him. All that was required in Israel was a certificate of divorce and ascending her out of his home. And God basically is saying, that's what I'm doing with you. I'm issuing a certificate of divorce. This marriage is null and void. This marriage is uh, dead because of your unfaithfulness, your Playing the whore, the whore with many lovers, the Lord says. And then God is about to evict her from the home, send her out from the land, put her, place her into captivity in Babylon uh, for their crimes against them, for their unfaithfulness in this marriage relationship. But you know, the amazing thing is that even at this point of the divorce court, of the end of the marriage, God is concerned to still give overtures of his love. That With man, it's impossible that that relationship would be restored in Israel. But with God, all things are possible. I mean, God is able to resurrect a dead marriage. God is able to restore his people to himself. If only they would be willing. If only they would be repentant. If only they would turn back to him. And even at this point, there's still a call that's given to the nation to return to him. But the interesting part of this next section is that God issues a call to repentance to the nation. And the central words of it are found in um, verse 12 and 13. Uh, Jeremiah is told to go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, this is actually a call to the northern kingdom, the kingdom that of, of, the, of the faithless sister. This is chapter 3 and verse 12. You thought we were in chapter 2, huh? <laughs> chapter 3 and verse 12. We're moving on from chapter 2. We're going into chapter 3 now, guys. And in chapter 3 and verse 12, go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares Yahweh. And I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against Yahweh your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree. And that you've not obeyed my voice, declares Yahweh. Return, O faithless children, declares Yahweh, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Actually, these words are spoken to the northern kingdom. The kingdom that in Jeremiah's time was already destroyed. It had been taken captive in 722 BC by the Assyrians, and the peoples were dispersed throughout the whole empire of the Assyrians. Uh, they brought uh, groups and groupings of people into one place, into another place, into another place, and they brought foreigners into the northern lands of the northern kingdom, into Samaria, to settle there. And that became the Samaritan people, that they weren't blood relationships to the Israelites. They came from other nations, and yet they settled in the land, and they learned the ways of the God of Israel, at least to the, po- the point of embracing the first five books of Moses. We read about Samaritans in the life, of course, of Jesus. Um, but this northern kingdom was dead and buried, one might say. But again, God is the God of resurrection power. God is the God who can resurrect a dead nation, 
uh, speak to the, the dead dry bones and say live again and God could raise up a nation once again so that's the center part of this whole section is a call to a divorced nation whose marriage relationship to God is null and void it's dead that they would yet come back to him and that God again would restore this relationship and, and it's presented in terms of two unfaithful sisters you had a little bit of that in the book of Ezekiel chapter 23 you got those I don't remember their names but they're given two names that are interesting in chapter 23 of Ezekiel and it's the northern kingdom of Israel taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC and the southern kingdom of Judah remember in the days after Solomon's reign Rehoboam uh, would not lessen the taxation and the tribute that he demanded of his people and so ten of the tribes rebelled and from that point it was no longer a united monarchy there was no longer a united Israel it was now separated into two peoples or two nations and they had separate kings and they had uh, uh, the northern kings even had separate places of worship uh, so that the people wouldn't come down to Jerusalem as God commanded them and so there was all manner of apostasy going on amongst that northern kingdom and they were the kingdom that really rebelled against God's will and ways and ways that the southern kingdom was largely kept from while you had King Ahab, the one who introduced Baal worship through his his uh, consort uh, Jezebel, married, that marriage to Jezebel, bringing Baal worship into the land. You had during the reign of Ahab, you had a godly king in the south named Je- Jehoshaphat, and um, you had many godly kings. Not all of them were godly kings, but it was the northern kingdom that was judged first they were the ones first taken away into captivity and uh, it was years later in fact in the days of Jeremiah there was a revival that took place as Josiah uh, had the book of the law recovered when the temple was being cleaned and uh, work was being done on it they found the book of the law they found probably the book of Deuteronomy and finding the book of Deuteronomy and Jeremiah is going to talk about this later on in chapter 15, 15 when he says your words were found your words were found he didn't say your words came to me like he normally does when it's a prophecy God gives to him but there was the finding of the word of God in the days of Josiah finding of the word of God in the temple and Jeremiah says your word became to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart when that word was discovered so among the godly there was a love for God's word the word of God that was recovered and restored and brought revival and brought reformation uh, to the nation and yet even at that point uh, uh, reformation uh, this is a passage that's going to tell us all was not well even then there was so much of the rot of compromise and the rot of um, practices that were godless uh, no sooner does Josiah die that his sons manifest their own failure to walk in the ways of their father Josiah and much less David and that's the next generation that comes and faces uh, the Babylonian armies uh, under the uh, the kings that were the, the sons of uh, Josiah but yet the word of God we're told in verse 6 of chapter 2 of chapter 3 comes to Jeremiah in the days of King Josiah in the very time of this revival the very time when the word of God was recovered and there was reforms that were made and there was the tearing down of the um, 
objects of pagan worship and know that externally was being done, yet there's reason to believe it wasn't quite done as well as it should have been done or as thoroughly as it should have been done or as honestly and with integrity as it should have been done. For we read that Yahweh said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? It's almost like God is uh, drawing near to Jeremiah as a friend and saying, can you beat this woman that was I've been married to? Can you beat what she's done? Can you understand how she's behaved? You know, almost like you know, what a guy would say to another guy about problems in a marriage. That's what God's doing. He's coming to Jeremiah the prophet. He's bearing his heart about the troubles that have gone on with the marriage. And he says, have you seen what, she's, what she did? That faithless one, Israel, northern kingdom. What's the northern kingdom? Well, faithless one. The word that's used and translated faithless one in the ESV is really a stronger word. It, it, it means more than faithless. It means rebel. It means the nation to the north simply rebelled against the Lord, failed to keep his ways. And in that sense, of course, they were faithless, but it's more than faithlessness. It's act, active rebellion. It's active rebellion against the, against their, their king, against their God, against their husband who had betrothed himself to them, who betrothed them to himself. Have you seen what rebel Israel has done? She went up on every high hill, under every green tree, all the places of pagan worship, all the places where the worship of the Baals and the Asherah were being conducted. She participated in those acts. You go back into chapter 2 and verse um, 20. For long ago you broke... Uh, you broke your yoke. It says in the ESV, I know it says, I broke your yoke. But no, they broke it. They're, they're rebel Judah here. They're a rebellious people. They burst their bonds. They said, I will not serve. I will not be subject to the God of Israel. I will not be subject to his laws. I will not be subject to his regulations. I will not be subject to the demands of this covenant relationship. I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill, under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. The very language is then used in chapter 3, not so much with Judah, who was also guilty of these things, but rebel Israel, the northern kingdom, was guilty of those things. And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me. There's still hope. I've chastened them. I've declared my mind to them. I've sent them my prophets. Yet she did not return. And then her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And, and it's funny, they use a strong word like treacherous sister Judah, and it's really faith, unfaithful sister Judah. That's really the meaning of that word. So in my mind, the ESV reverses the intensity of those words. It's rebel Israel, rebel northern kingdom. It's faithless Judah, faithless southern kingdom. The northern kingdom did not return and Judah witnessed it all. Witnessed my relationship with that wife I divorced. The wife I gave a certificate of divorce to 
and sent her from the home, brought her into captivity amongst the nations through the Assyrian invasion and the Assyrian captivity. Would Judah witness it all? She saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one or that rebel one Israel, for all the adulteries of rebel Israel, I had sent her away with the decree of divorce. I put the decree in her hand and I sent her out from my home. I sent her out from the land. I brought her into captivity in foreign lands. Yet for all of that, her faithless sister Judah did not fear. But she just followed the path of rebel Israel. She too went and played the whore. And she did it without any concern or consideration or thought to what the implications of this would be. She witnessed what happened to the north. Rebel Israel was sent out, given a certificate of divorce and put into exile. And she didn't take it to heart. She took her whoredom lightly. No big deal. No big deal. She polluted the land. Committed adultery with stone and tree. Again, not sexual adultery, but spiritual adultery. The worship of other gods. The engagement in pagan practices. The engagement in idolatrous activity in places where stone and tree were made altars and made totem poles and places of pagan worship. For all this, faithless sister Judah did not return to me. Here's the key issue. With her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Again, this is the days of King Josiah. This is the days of reform. This is the days when things are changing. This is the days when the high places are being taken down. These are the times when there's a return to normal, regular practices in the temple. The restoration of the Passover. The restoration of the feasts. The all this by divine decree. Not divine decree. By the decree of the king. The king is putting forth the orders. We're going to do this law. We're going to keep the law that we've uncovered and discovered in the temple. And these practices are now going to be done. And so we might say that there was a return. There was an reinstituting of a more biblical order of things in temple worship. A more biblical order of things in what was demanded of the Israelite citizen with respect to the externalities of the law of God. But the problem was this was not a heart return. This was external changes being made. This is cosmetic changes to the the nature of um, the religious practices of the people in the land. But all of it is pretentious. All of it is false. All of it, the God who knows the heart says, is not being done with sincerity. It's not being done with truth. It's not being done with the inner life. Responding to the God of the covenant and returning in love to the God of the covenant. It seems to be a return. It's kind of like when marriage partners go to counseling and they think they've just patched things up because the counselor said, you know, change this, change this, change this, change this. They agreed to it for six months and then everything seems to fall apart. 
the basic problem still exists. You can change the externals. You can make cosmetic changes. But if there's not the rekindling of love, if there's not that personal commitment to one another, it's, it's pretentious. It's an external thing that never touches the real problem. The heart is wrong with the marital partner. And there needs to be the return in love. And this didn't happen. Even with the Reformation in the days of Josiah. Again, you read the book of Kings and you think everything was great. You think there's tremendous reforms. I've heard preachers preach on Reformation from the life of Josiah. My problem with that is it's not 50 years later until the Babylonian captivity. Things just fell apart. Things just didn't continue in the way of faithfulness because the nation of Judah was a faithless nation. There were changes externally. There were pretentious changes. There was never the renewal of the heart. There was never the return to God in sincerity and in truth. And the interesting thing is that when God evaluates the rebel Israel to the north and faithful, faithless Judah to the south, or uh, he says um, that rebel Israel, in verse 11, has shown herself more righteous than faithless Judah. Why? What in the world could have made rebel Israel more righteous than faithless Judah? I think it was the pretentious reforms that are in view. They thought in some way they could avert the judgment of God. And that was the motivating thing. If we continue in these sinful ways that we're doing, all the curses that are in this book is going to come upon us. They were dealing with self-interest, not with any interest in the glory of their Redeemer King, the God who had brought the nation out of slavery in Egypt, who had brought them on eagle's wings to himself, had established a covenant relationship in love with them. That was at the heart of the relationship. And that never was restored. Their concern was, we need to change things because judgment's coming. And we don't want to get ourselves involved in the curses that are mentioned here. So to save our skin, let's straighten up and fly right for a time. But again, it wasn't lasting. Because it was never real. It was never genuine. It was never a genuine return to the Lord. God hates that type of hypocrisy. God disdains that kind of phoniness. There's no reality, but only this externality of heartless religion that's not born of faith. So in that sense, the sins of Judah are greater than the sins of the northern kingdom. Because they had the word they found in the temple. And you know, when you think of the book of Deuteronomy, you don't just think of the judgments and the curses, but do you think of the love that Yahweh had to Israel? The Lord did not choose you because you were the greatest of the nations. He chose you because He loved you. He loved you. It was His love that brought Him to bring you out of Egyptian bondage. It was His love 
that brought you to himself. It was his love that was the motivating factor of all of it. Read the early chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, how that's asserted over and over and over again. Again, it's a love story. And they had access to that love story. And they didn't respond to the love of God with reciprocal love. Only pretentious change. God says, not only is that insufficient, that's more outrageous than anything the northern kingdom did in their blindness. And then the fact that there was not much in the way of a true religion to be found there, or even the word of God that had simply been lost and not had been read and not had been consulted, treacherous Judah not only failed, but provoked God to anger with their pretentious, hypocritical reformations and revival. But yet there's hope. Because if God is going to say that rebel Israel has offended less, and there's still some way in which God himself will view rebel Israel in a way in which there's hope, well, faithless Judah can enter into that hope as well. And so Jeremiah is now told in verse 12 to go and proclaim these words toward the north. Now again, the tribes of Israel were not in the north any longer. They were taken into captivity. They were taken away from the land. And yet that's where they formerly dwelled. And so I guess if Ezekiel is going to prophesy to a valley of dry bones, uh, Jeremiah can prophesy to a land that has been divested of its inhabitants and replaced by foreigners that have come into that land. And God says, proclaim this word to the north, to a land abandoned by the inhabitants. And say to that forsaken land, that abandoned land, that land that had been taken into captivity, return, faithless Israel. Again, no one to hear it. But yet God is a God able to resurrect dry bones and make them a mighty army. God's able to take words prophesied to the north and bring the captives back. Bring them back to their land. And that's what God tells Jeremiah to do. Return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. Again, it's not your virtue. It's not your worthiness. It's not anything you've done. You've done nothing. And yet I'm a God of faithfulness, and I'm a God of mercy. And I will not look on you in anger. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. Only come to terms with the reality of your rebellious ways, your idolatrous acts, your unfaithfulness to your covenant God. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge that you've rebelled against Yahweh, your God. You've scattered your favors among the foreigners, among every under every green tree, that you've not obeyed my voice. Only come to grips with your sins and take accountability for them. Return, faithless children, rebel children, declares Yahweh. For I am your master, and I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you from Zion. Again, this is the acknowledgement. They've been dispersed everywhere. Everywhere. I'll take one from here, one from here, one from there, one from there, and I'll bring them all back. 
again I think it's something reminiscent of Jesus imagery that they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God that God has redeemed people from all the nations of the world I think this is something not so much of a prophecy of a restored northern kingdom because the northern kingdom was never restored but the fact that God is able to bring the dispersed peoples of all nations and bring them to himself maybe you think of Anna who was of the tribe of Asher who's one, that's one of the northern tribes taken into captivity we find her in the temple when Jesus was being circumcised in the dedication that we read about in chapter 2 of Luke and she was there waiting for the consolation of Israel she's waiting for the restoration she's waiting for God to restore his people and it's in Jesus that restoration is realized And the God who gives us this picture of the... I didn't give you an outline. I should probably give you an outline. I'll give you the outline like this. The verses 6 to 10 is really the, the tale of two sisters. It's a tale of rebel Israel, faithless Judah. And then there is the word proclaimed to the northern kingdom. This word calling for restoration, returning. Repentance. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge your sins. I will restore you. I'll bring you back to Zion. Again, not just to the northern tribes. I'll bring you to Zion. I'll bring you to true Zion. I'll bring you to heavenly Zion. I'll bring you to the Zion that we've come to as new covenant believers. When in Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, I'm sorry, I'll get it right. Hebrews chapter 12, actually we're told we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of saints, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. These are the realities we've come to. We've come to the true Zion, holy Zion, heavenly Zion, the city of God. God says, I'll bring, I'll bring the dispersed, I'll bring the scattered, I'll bring the people that are under the dominion of other masters and bring them under my mastery, my lordship, my kingship, in my kingdom. In my Zion, I will bring you to myself. And then the God who calls upon the peoples, dispersed and scattered, to repent and return, is the God who now issues forth his promises of fullness of supply. God says, first of all, I'll give you shepherds, verse 15, shepherds after my own heart. Now, Again, we think of shepherds, we think of a picture of a pastoral scene of you know, a sheepfold and a shepherd with his crook that leads the sheep to places of feeding and the rest. But actually the picture of a shepherd in the ancient world, uh, though having that reality, was also something used of the king, of the shepherd king, such as David was who shepherd not just a flock of lambs or sheep, but shepherd their people. A king who shepherds their peop- his people. When Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, is to acknowledge the kingly rights of, of, of Yahweh, that Yahweh is king of, in Israel. And the king leads and shepherds his people. You have that picture. I'm maybe not going to find the passage in the book of Numbers when Moses is going to be 
taken in death, God says he's going to raise up a shepherd to do what? Well, to lead the people. I think it might be 21 of Numbers. Let me just look there quickly and see if we can find it. No, probably not in 21. Oh, I'm sorry. It's uh, Well, Moses strikes the rock in chapter 20. Well, I, I told you I'm probably not going to find it. But God says he's going to raise up a shepherd to lead the people. Like Moses was the shepherd of the people. The one who leads the people is the shepherd of the people. The one who's the king over a nation is the shepherd of that nation. And David is that example. David's the prototype of the true king, the king after God's own heart. And God says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart, like David. There'll be the restoration of the Davidic throne. There'll be the restoration of true David who will come to be the true king over my people. And the king will feed you with knowledge and feed you with understanding. Very similar to what Isaiah chapter 11 says of the one from the root of Jesse who will come again to to lead the people and to reign over the people in righteousness and justice. And he will impart to them with the Spirit of God knowledge and understanding. This is a king who will feed the nation with knowledge and with understanding to lead them into the ways of God. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, and there's the language of the blessing of creation, being fruitful and multiplying, there's a people who will be fruitful and multiply under the creation blessing of God, under a new creation that God will enact in the coming days when Messiah comes and the true shepherd of Israel comes to lead his people. In that day, you're not going to be talking about where's the Ark of the Covenant? Indiana Jones might have been concerned about that. But you and I as the people, New Covenant people of God, we're not concerned about the Ark of the Covenant. Whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Who cares? It's not material. Again, that's what the people of Israel might have been concerned about. You can see in chapter 7, when Jeremiah is going to speak to the nation, when God tells them to go to the temple, his complaint against them is they're always saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In other words, we have the temple. We're, we're indestructible. No one's going to bother with us. We have the God that dwells in the temple. We have all these external manifestations of the religion of Israel. But all those external manifestations mean nothing if it's not a commitment to the heart. If there's not the love relationship that's supposed to undergird Yahweh's relationship to his people. It's a love story. And the restoration God brings is the love story. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's in love He comes to save us and redeem us and to bring us to himself. It's not the Ark of the Covenant that's an issue any longer. It will not come to mind. It will not be remembered. It will not even be missed. Who cares? We got something greater. At that time, verse 17, 
Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And again, I think from the New Covenant perspective, we're really dealing with the days of Messiah. We're dealing with the coming of Christ. And we're dealing with the heavenly Jerusalem. We're dealing with God bringing us into realities that the Old Testament presented in type and shadow of the greater things that are to come. Of the heavenly Jerusalem, where God reigns over a people, and all the nations are being gathered to it. And what are they being gathered to? An institution that... uh, they can join and be part of and get benefits from and just say, well, I'm, I'm a Roman Catholic or I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian and just glory in our own identity with some human institution. Well, again, not to say that those entities are not in many places, the divine institution of true churches, of assemblies of the saints. I'm not saying that at all, but we, oftentimes it's the institutional church that we tend to glory in every bit as much as the people of Israel gloried in the Ark of the Covenant. And they weren't concerned about the Lord of the Covenant. They weren't concerned about the central feature of the Covenant, that I will be a God to you, and you will be my people, and I will be in your midst. But here the picture is that where God reigns as shepherd over his people, leading them, feeding them, bringing them knowledge and understanding, multiplying them, making them fruitful with his blessing among them, they will be gathered to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem. The chief reality of the church of Christ is that God is in our midst where two or three are gathered together I will be present among them it's a fact we have a God that's not far off and distant but a God who is near a God who is with us they will be gathered to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart It's hard to follow your own evil heart when Yahweh is in the midst of you, when the God of Israel is near. My wife used to tell me I was a different man on the Lord's Day. I'm trying to be, best as I can, the same person Thursday as I am on Sunday. But you know what the key issue is on Sunday? It's the nearness of the Lord. Is the nearness of the Lord. It's the reality of God's promised presence that's realized when we gather on Sunday. It's hard to be a lousy man or a lousy husband or inconsiderate or unconcerned or loudmouthed or just insensitive when God is in the midst of you. It really does change you. It really does alter you from the inside. And so that you follow a renewed heart. A heart that's Transformed and changed, not your own evil heart. It's the presence of God that makes all the difference. And then in those days, there's a united Israel. In those days, there'll be one people of God. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. And together they shall come from the land of the north. And then that's the place that the enemies would come to conquer. They wouldn't go, go through the, the deserts to the east. They'd come through that mountainous areas, down through the 
Golan Heights in Syria and come down into the land and a much easier way to bring an army into the Holy Land. And so that's what they did. They came from the north. And now from the north, they'll return. Those that are in, that were divorced will come back. The marriage will be rekindled. The relationship will be reinstituted. There'll be the restoration of the people of God. And they'll come to the land I gave to your fathers for a heritage. And it won't just be Jews that will come. It'll be the people of all the nations that will come and be part of this great gathering of a people for the Lord. So, again, even in the midst of the most dismal scene of divorce court, of exile, of a certificate of divorce, thrusting the people out from the land, think the marriage relationship is helpless, nothing can get restored. God says, I am merciful. I am merciful. And it's my plan, my purpose, my intent, my desire to have a people who will know creation's blessing. I determined to have a people who will know redemption's blessing. I determined to have a people who will be subject to me, who will return to me, not in pretense, but in reality and truth, who will be led by the true shepherd of Israel, a true shepherd after my own heart who will feed us with the blessings of his wisdom and understanding and and knowledge and rejoice the hearts of my people with his presence, bringing the presence of God to bear upon the people of God so that we will be a united people serving him with one heart and one, one spirit in the furtherance of the gospel. Well, again, that's the picture that Jeremiah gives of what he, of his future hope, of the future expectation. It was never realized in his day, but those people did live in hope. We're the recipients of the hope. We're the recipients of these prophetic words that come to birth through Christ and through the bringing in of the new covenant and the establishment of a new Israel and the establishment of a heavenly Jerusalem and of a holy Zion um, that comes about through the um, through the the power of the new creation, the power of the redemptive work of of Jesus. So, well, again, I hope that leads what is a dismal section in Jeremiah to have something of a, a happy ending. The love story ends happily. You know, you always have in the rom coms, the romance movies, a point in which there's desperation and hopelessness they're never going to get back together (laughs) and somehow the people that make those movies they want to give you a happy ending where they do in fact get back together well God gives us something of that kind of a happy ending because this is a love story of God's love to his people that will bring them back to himself may God be pleased to, to bless his word and encourage our hearts let's go to him in prayer Father we're thankful for the reality of your love for what your love does in creating a people for yourself and bringing a people to be restored to you from the most desperate 
depths of our sin, from the most distant places of the earth, that we would leave our idols and leave our trust in other things and come to serve and worship the living and true God to make you our confidence, to make you our trust. We're thankful for the hope that the prophet Jeremiah set out before um, those that were rebellious people, a faithless people, and yet, Lord, you are able to save the rebels, save the faithful, faithless, and make them faithful. And we're thankful for the power of your transforming grace that brings such things about. So we're thankful for our time in Jeremiah this evening and pray you'd give us to consider these things and give us understanding in them. And then we pray you'd be with us in the days of the week that is before us. Help us, Lord, to serve you well, not just on the Lord's Day, but each day of the week to humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you might lift us up uh, to seek you and to serve you um, in the light of your truth. Give us to have your word to dwell in our hearts that we might not sin against you, but rather we would live for you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen.